I'm here with Professor Sir John Strang, who is the head of the Addictions Unit here at King's, and who gave a keynote talk this afternoon, um, which was brilliant um, and, and full of amazing evidence and history and, and the story. Um, so naloxone was a key part of that talk, John. What is naloxone? Okay, so naloxone is a pretty easy concept. It's a complete antidote to the effects of opiates in general, and let's concentrate on the heroin in particular. So uh, if, if somebody is suffering from a heroin overdose and you give them naloxone, it completely reverses the effect of the heroin and miraculously they come back to life. So anyone who's seen Pulp Fiction uh, will know that scene. Uh, that there's a long list of things that are terribly wrong with how the film was made. <laughs> and it's not as instantaneous as occurs in the film, but... Ambulance crews would typically use this. They'd give an injection of naloxone, and within two or three minutes, someone who was apparently at death's door suddenly wakes up, uh, and it's completely reversed the effects of the heroin overdose. And so this is something that we use. We, this must be something that we use in practice, as it's such a... This has been around for 50 years. Okay. Uh, it was developed in the 60s. It became clinical practice in the 70s and early 80s, for ambulance crews, for, for uh, accident and emergency departments, or for anaesthetists who bring somebody around from a deep anaesthetic. Uh, and then part of the thinking would be what we would call technology transfer. So there are lots of things that you develop in a very specialist setting. You then move into wider medical practice. And then with some of them, you move them out there into the community where the crisis occurs. And you can think of lots of examples, like an EpiPen. Mm. So an EpiPen will have been developed for emergency management in hospital setting. Then people will have said, surely ambulance crews should have it. And then somebody has the idea and says, hold on, we should place this with the person themselves or the family so that they can use it. And that applies the same logic uh, to naloxone. But I guess that young children with nut allergies and diabetics probably have access to these things, whereas people who are addicted to heroin don't. Yeah, and there, you're absolutely right, there you come up against something that is not to do with the technology of are we able to do it, but you come up against that interface between what medicine can do and what public opinion and political support endorses. And uh, a lot of the difficulty with the idea of take naloxone is people struggling with the concept that we would plan in advance for an event that occurs as a problem for a behaviour that we disapprove of. And I think probably for all of us, it's hugely important to just imagine that our brother or sister or our son or our daughter was that person struggling with a heroin problem. <clears throat> and you know, would we wake up at night worrying about whether they were okay in the bedroom? Are they asleep and safe or are they suffering from an overdose? And anyone who's been a parent will know that anxiety you have about whether your child's, you know, whether that baby is breathing properly and is safe. And if you apply that to this situation, of course we don't want the behaviour to occur of the drug use or of the overdose that occurs. But gosh, we really do want to be as 
empowered and able to intervene as much as possible. And minutes matter. So just like if you're dealing with a heart attack or an asthma crisis or, or an allergy, if it takes 20 minutes for the ambulance crew to arrive, that 20 minutes might be the 20 minutes when it's too late to intervene. And so what we're talking about here is how do you, how do you enable a partner or a family member or even a fellow drug user to be somebody who can do something in that interim period whilst waiting for the ambulance to arrive. Uh, and that's the critical bit here, that you can, you can teach people general skills, you can also equip them with naloxone as an antidote, and the ambulance crew come along and they can then fine-tune the response and they can take over from that point onwards. So I'm really interested in why it takes so long. We know it takes 20 years for research to get into practice. Mm. Um, it, it's taking longer for this to get into practice. Mm. Why, what, what are the barriers this getting into policy? Yeah. I mean, that's a really good question, and it's an uncomfortable question. So in some areas, I can point you to, to examples where it's moved quite quickly. And you'd say to me, well, what, what's all the fuss about problem solved? You know, so I can, I can point to colleagues who've understood the notion and the importance of it, have realised this is real lives saved, uh, and that they have been pioneers in introducing take-home naloxone as part of routine practice. But for every one of those areas I can point to where it's, they've been early adopters, they've been innovators and pioneers of bringing it into practice, there will be a dozen or several dozen where it almost, I think the phrase I used today was inertia. It, it isn't even opposition. It's just people can think of endless uncertainty and complications for why they don't do it. Um, how do we know that it'll be used properly? Well, you probably better train people in how to use it properly. Uh, how do we know they'll have an adequate dose? Well, um, pretty certain that that same problem exists with an EpiPen, uh, but it's better to have an EpiPen even if the ambulance crew then turn up and need to give more. Uh, people worry about the cost, and you, you then go, well, hold on. The costs are pretty trivial. Um, they range from less than a pound if it was an ampule, but that's probably an unsuitable format for the general public, um, to £18 if it's a pre-filled syringe or £27 if it's a nasal spray. You start thinking, these are pretty trivial costs compared with the awfulness of the situation you're dealing with. So the bottom line, it strikes me, the uncomfortable truth that you've alluded to a couple of times is that we don't value the lives of people living with addiction, living with heroin problems as much as we do other members of our society. I think that's right. And I think it's where in dealing with overdose, the prevention of overdose deaths and the potential of taking naloxone, we need to engage with that wider public debate uh, that however much we may disapprove of or be saddened by someone's life circumstances and their life behavior we we need to realize they are still someone's son or daughter or partner uh, and part of the way in which we work with them the respect we show to them will actually shape what their futures are and quite a, quite a number of the uh, advocates in the field uh, arguing for the importance of take-home naloxone in the international context 
are themselves people who are have previously had addiction problems. They have, you know, they have friends who are no longer with them because they didn't know how to deal with the overdose when it occurred. And now having become you know, more stable in their lives and more committed to making the world a better place, they're advocating for wider availability. Uh, so I think we, uh, it's quite possible for us to be disapproving of a behaviour and yet still willing to engage actively in dealing with it. And let's be clear, most of medicine uh, is there, you know, as, as a doctor, you are faced with patients where their lifestyle and their behaviour has contributed to their presentation, whether it's a heart attack, whether it's somebody presenting with their asthma. You know, of, of course, there is a pathology we recognise, but there are also lifestyle factors that have massively contributed to that presentation. Mm-hmm.